So we are going to continue in our series in Isaiah, and we're going to look at two stewards. Two stewards, one who thought he had the keys to the kingdom, who really thought he just had it figured out, had the keys to life, and turns out had no clue. And another steward who was given incredibly powerful keys. And we'll look at the two of these guys and see what the difference is and see how it all shakes out. So that's going to be Isaiah chapter 22, starting in verse 15. Before we read, let me just say one brief, quick more prayer. Lord, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your grace. Lord, I thank you that you love us so deeply, God. I pray that you would bring to our hearts and minds, Father, the things that you want to change in our life this morning. Father, there are keys that we carry in our pocket, Lord, that are keys to nowhere. In fact, they are keys to death. Lord, I pray that you would reveal those keys to us and help us to surrender them, to give them up, God, and to find the key, Lord, the master key, the key we can always count on, Lord. I pray that you would make that clear to us this morning. In your son's name, amen. All right, so this first steward that we're going to look at. So a steward is not the king, but he's like the number one guy under the king. He's like the chief administrative officer that takes care of business for the king, right? So we have these two stewards. So the first steward we're going to look at is Shebna. So we're going to take a look at him. Verse 15 says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to the steward to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here? That you have cut out here a tomb for yourself. You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Question mark. Who are you? What do you have to do with the household of God? Who do you have? Do you even belong here? I think probably something even worse than realizing you don't have your house keys and you're locked out and you can't like get in the house. Even worse than that is for some reason showing up at the wrong house that you think it's yours. Now, I don't, probably not many of us, I won't ask for a show of hands, because I know it would be incredibly embarrassing. But, so Don and I, we have this thing called the ring, some of you may have it, it's a little doorbell that hooks to the internet, so Skynet can keep an eye on us, right? But, some of you got that. But, so, it's this cool little video on the porch, and people will post up things, crazy things that people have done on their porch, and they, with not realizing that they're being videotaped. And there's one video that we saw, this guy came up to the door, and it's like, he, you can tell he's coming up the door like, I own this, this is my home, I'm, I own this place. And he comes up and he gives it the turn, and it's locked, I won't look. And he's like shaking it, he's looking through the window, and he's pinging on it, like, hey guys, come on, I'm here, what's going on? And he's looking and looking, and then you kind of, like, it dawns on him, like, I'm at the wrong house. <laughs> oh my gosh, and so he just walks away. Like, how embarrassing is that, right? I'd be, I think that'd be worse. I don't know. So this guy, Shebna, he thinks he's all that. And he's all about himself. He's all about his own glory. But God's saying, look, you don't even, you, this is, you're at the wrong house, dude. You don't even belong here. You think you're the steward? You're, you think you're some master head guy? You don't even belong here. Who, he says, what have you to do here? And whom have you here? That you have cut out here a tomb for yourself. You who cut a tomb out on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Is that crazy? He's, he's made this amazing, beautiful edifice as a tomb, 
right? This big sulpliker. In fact, they believe they found this one in, uh, I think this in, I don't know, I have it written down somewhere, but there's a town in the Middle East where they think they found this tomb, and the partial inscription has the end of this guy's name on it, and it's this amazing, elaborate tomb that this guy built for himself. Why would someone build an elaborate tomb for themselves? Because of their pride, their ego? But it's kind of ironic, is it not? You're going to build this giant, elaborate tomb for yourself, and you're dead. Like, what? there's so much irony in that. Like, really, you're going, to live in the, you're going to live there? Do you think you're going to care at that point that you've got this elaborate tomb? But of course, they're doing it for their legacy. It's, it's going to be their lasting name. People will come to and visit your tomb your, and, and go, oh, wasn't that a great person? That's what this guy is about. He's all about his own glory, and he's made this amazing, awesome tomb. And what's God saying? God's saying, look, you are so far gone. You don't even know you're at the wrong house. And this is, what, what does God do with them? Verse 17, Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. Again, a lot of irony in there. It says, O you strong man. God, what's God going to do? It's not only God is going to, it's not that he's going to get a demotion or that he's going to go next door to the house next door. God's going to take this guy and literally hurl him away. This, uh, the next verse says, He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariot, you shame of your master's house. So not only God's kind of just to remove him, you know, quietly remove him from the office, you know, quiet demotion. God's going to take this guy and hurl him around and around and around and throw him out into the desert. It made me think of, this is kind of old, I might be dating myself, but remember one of the older Hulk movies? And the Hulk is like taking on the entire U.S. Army by himself, and he's just massive, you know, the Hulk, right? He's, he's massive, he's huge. He grabs hold of this M1 Abrams tank by its muzzle, and he starts whirling it around and around like a hammer thrower, and throws this tank like out to the horizon. You see this little, it's like, that's, that's what God is doing to this guy Shebna. He's like whirling him around and around and just throwing him way out to the desert. So this guy who thinks he's all that, who's at the pinnacle, he's the man in charge, a man with a plan, and God's saying, look, you don't have any part of me. You are completely on the wrong planet, and I'm just going to hurl you away, you and your horses and chariots, because this guy was all about, hey, let's align ourselves with Egypt. We can count on Egypt, because they have horses and chariots, right? That'll give us power. This guy is all about power, but he's looking in the wrong place for it. Right? He's looking to himself, he's looking to an alliance with Egypt, and God, again, very sarcastically is saying, look, I'm going to hurl you. you. You think you're strong, old man? You think you're a strong man? I'll show you strength. I'm going to hurl you all the way out to the desert, you and the horse you rode in on, you and your horses and chariots. Those things that you think are so powerful that you're going to trust in, you're going to be sitting out in the desert with what you think is so strong and powerful all by yourself. And do we not ourselves find ourselves doing that at times if we're honest, right? Can we not be like Shebna? What is it that we put our hope and faith in? Where are our keys? What's the key that we think is going to open the door to blessing and glory and holiness? What is the key to your hopes and dreams, right? And it's a very subtle thing, is it not? I mean, Isaiah keeps railing over and over and over and over and over and over again about idols. And why does he do that? And why do you think 
the Lord has us going through this book because idols, number one, are incredibly ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're all around us. Every advertising ad on the radio, on TV, online, on the internet, wherever, every ad that anybody has ever spent a penny on is designed to convince you that that thing is God, that that thing is going to save you, that thing is going to make you happy and fulfilled and joyful and feel great and awesome and have success and have a legacy and be remembered and be popular and be famous. Every ad ever created is designed to convince you of that, convince us of that. It's ubiquitous. It's all around us. It's the air we breathe. And I think we have to be purposeful. I think God is calling us to be purposeful to say, hey, these are all just false keys. These are all just going to leave us locked out in the cold. Some of these things may bring some momentary joy, some, some moment of happiness, but it's fleeting, is it not? And then a day of reckoning comes and it wears out like a day after you get it. Suddenly not the new shiny toy, the little bauble, it just doesn't have the shine in it anymore. So I think the Lord is saying to us, hey, you know what? What are you really hoping? Where's your source of power? Is it your own ability? Your own strength, your own mind, your own creativity? God's given us all gifts, right? And they're all good things. Good things are good things. They're from the hand of God. Just don't worship them. We've probably heard the definition of an idol. Definition of an idol is a good thing that you've made into a God thing, and that becomes an idol, right? So God gives us good gifts. We can enjoy those good gifts. We can enjoy our friendships and our relationships with our family, all of that. Just don't think that that's the ultimate source for you. Amen? So let's look at Elikim. He's, Elikim is another steward, starting in verse 20. In that day I will call my servant Elikim, the son of Helikai, and I will clothe him with your robe. Whose robe? Shebna's robe. I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So God's saying about this steward that, look, I'm going to place you in this place of authority. And notice the contrast here. This is such a contrast between the two. One has claimed it for himself. He's taken it for himself. The other one, it is being given to him by the Lord. So you want blessing and joy and pleasure and all the good things in life? Be sure that they're coming from the Lord, right? And not something that you're creating and maybe even kind of an idol that you're putting all your hope and faith in and then it disappoints. And sometimes that disappointment can be crushing. But it's God who establishes this Stuart Elikam, continuing in verse 22, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Okay, this is really important language here. So what he's saying is with the robe and with the sash and then placing the key of David on his shoulder, what God is saying is like, I'm going to give this steward lots of power. I'm going to give him the ability to say, hey, we are doing this, and it's going to go this way, right? And if he says open, it's going to open. If he says shut, it's going to shut, and nobody can say otherwise. This other guy, Shebna, thought he was the man of his own creation, but this Stuart Elikim 
He is the man of God's creation. He's the man that God has empowered to be a leader and to be effective and to serve the kingdom of God. And that's, by the way, the critical difference. You want to know which one of those you're operating in? Because A, we are not one or the other, we're both. And sometimes we're operating more like Shebna, and our motive is about our own kingdom, our own self, promoting ourselves. Other times we're operating like Elikim, and we're about what? We're about the household of God. Whose house are we serving, right? Whose house do you want to get into, ultimately? Whose house do you want to serve in? And God is saying to Elikim, look, I'm going to establish you to serve in my household, and I will give you the power to make decisions, and there'll be binding authoritative decisions. And when you say do this, it's going to go down. And when you say do that, it's going to go down. When you say open, it's open. When you say close, close, and nobody else can say different. That's a lot of power. And I want you to notice here that this is kind of a type of the Messiah. This is sort of a precursor, a foreshadowing of who the Messiah is and what, how he operates and who he's about. Jesus not all about his father's house. He's totally about his father's house. He was so angry at those in the temple who were obscuring the purpose of his father's house and, and making a mess of his father's house that he bound up a bunch of ropes and whipped them out of the house and drove them out of his father's house. He was so angry, he was so compelled, so zealous for his father's house, right? So this guy is a prototype of the Messiah, of Christ himself. And a lot of these characteristics we find in the Old Testament, New Testament, attributed to Christ. In fact, Isaiah in chapter 9, remember around Christmas time, we talked about the way I always remember it is the Handel's Messiah, wonderful counselor, almighty God. He's the eternal father, right? And the government will be upon his shoulders. That language sound familiar? Isn't that the language that you see here? He says, I will clothe him with your robe. I will bind him sash. I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. So that's another figurative way to talk about the government being on your shoulders. The government, you holding the power for a political system or for an authority, right? So the key of David is, is symbolic of having that authority, having the, a binding authority where if you determine to do this, it's going down. And that's very much how Christ is, is it not? Let's continue in 23. And I will fasten him like a peg in a sure, secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. So God is going to take the steward and he's going to establish him and he's going to make him really secure in his position. The other guy was all about pursuing himself and chasing after his own glory, his own majesty and making this great tomb for himself. He's gone, right? He's so easily overpowered. But this guy who is a prototype of Christ and has the character of Christ God is going to establish him. He's going to put him, anchor him as a permanent peg. And the household of David, meaning God's people, will begin to put their trust on him. They'll be able to begin to hang the elements of their household on this guy because he'll be able to support their way because God 
is the power behind him. And that's the key idea here. It's God who's the power behind him, right? And notice it says that on this peg, he will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. So this guy will be honorable. The offspring and the issue, all the, the great and the small, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. So the little, little bitty baby cups to the big giant you know, flagons hang on this guy. And one little thing I want to say here, if you belong to the Lord, if you dwell in the house of the Lord spiritually, okay, you've confessed your sin to Christ and you've trusted him for your salvation, it doesn't matter if you're a great giant flagon or a tiny little, little baby cup in the household of God, all of these are loved and supported and cared for and used by our Lord. Amen? I remember when I was a young Christian, I used to think this way. I used to think, well, Lord, I'm so awful. <laughs> I mean, every day I do things as a young person. I, I just, I'm just awful. I'm just so convicted in Scripture. And I'm like, but Lord, I, the Bible teaches me. I understand that I have salvation by faith. Therefore, it's not my works, but it's your works of righteousness that none should boast. And therefore, I have a place in your kingdom. But I still continue to be really pretty awful. I have really bad motives and think about really bad things. I'm just... So, Lord, maybe what you're going to do is you're just going to make me this little, maybe a little tough of grass in the very back corner of your temple in between two stones and the floor. That's literally how I pictured myself in God's kingdom. It's like, oh, Lord, but I'm so awful. Therefore, how can I really have a place of anything, any kind of place in your household? And I think the Spirit of the Lord wants to say to you, if you, if you have any sense of that, that somehow you are small or that, or that you are insignificant in the household of the Lord, no, it doesn't matter who you are. God has a place for you, and God will use you mightily, whether you're a small cup or a big giant flagon. And in fact, oftentimes, it's those little small cups that the Lord seems to really use in very significant ways, right? So I want to encourage you. You know what? We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we continue to struggle. We all struggle, right? But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and more importantly, he's brought us into his home, his household. And guess who has the keys? Not us. Somebody really important has those keys, and we're going to get into that. So what happens with this guy? This guy's secure. He begins to be trusted. The household of Israel begins to rely on this guy, right? And by the way, a quick little aside. If you're that person, if you're that person that begin, people begin to recognize that, you know, you're pretty trustworthy. If I ask you, ask you to do something, you're pretty much going to get it done or you'll get help to get it done. If you're that person, you can tend to find yourself with a lot being piled up on top of you more and more and more. And there comes a point where you need to recognize, hey, you know what, I might need some help. So if you get to that feeling where you're starting to feel like burnt out or like it's just too much, that's when you need to stop and talk to the Lord and talk to your friends and family and your fellow church members and say, hey, I need help with that. Think of Moses. Remember Moses? And his father-in-law came to him and said, hey, you're doing too much, dude. You're trying to judge this entire giant nation in the desert. It's too much for you. So here's the plan. You're going to delegate all this out to, to leaders of hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands, and if they can't solve it, then they'll finally come to you, right? So I just that's a little freebie on the side that if you're that person, if you demonstrate trustworthiness and you feel yourself kind of getting overburdened, overwhelmed, don't just sit on it and be quiet with it. Let people know. Let us know. Let the, your brothers know, hey, I need help, right? 
Because, and what happens when you do that? God can continue to build out on that trustworthiness that you've already demonstrated. So just a little side there. All right, so we have this awesome steward, Elikim, and things are going really, really well. People are beginning to trust him. God has empowered him, right? He's making decisions. He has all this quality. And then verse 25, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Wait, what? Hold it. I thought this was like a prototype of Messiah. Everything is going good. This guy's walking in the power and the strength of the Lord. He understands that God is the one who has the key to everything. And yet, at the end of it, he's going to fail. That peg's going to fall off. He's going to lose his place in this secure setting. There's a you know, red number of commentators on this, and some of them want to go back and say, no, this is not the good steward, Eliakim, this is the bad steward, and he's being lost. But I don't think the language says it that way. The language ascribes Elikim to being the peg, the peg that's securely mounted in the wall, right? And then this language at the very end very specifically says the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. So this is the good steward who's trusted in the Lord, but he's going to give way at some point. And here's the point. Even the best leaders, even the most spiritual people that you know, even the best friends, even the people that you've grown to trust the most, sooner or later are going to fail us. Are they not? And that can be the most devastating failure, right? Because we've learned to trust them. And not only us, if they're that kind of person who's demonstrated so much trustworthiness, a lot of people have learned to trust them. And it can be devastating, can it not? When that person fails, either they have, and I don't even mean necessarily some moral failure, although that's possible, but it could just be that they've grown old and they just don't have the capacity anymore and that they've passed on from this life and their time has come, it's over, they're done. They've served the Lord well and it's over and it's done. Now what? And it's interesting, I, I see that now, I've seen that a number of times with large church ministries that really grew under the leadership of this really charismatic powerful, godly preacher. And then when that preacher moves on for whatever reason, the church struggles. It kind of loses its footing for a while and they have to go through this process of trying to figure out, okay, are we ultimately about this pastor or are we ultimately about Christ? You know, who are we ultimately serving here? So we need to understand, you know, everybody fails. Sometimes absolutely and totally. Sometimes they're just you know, the garden variety failures, and we need to understand that there's one person only that we can put our ultimate trust in. Does that mean we don't trust anybody else? No. We trust other people. As they earn trust, we give them trust. But understand this, that sooner or later, some of your most trusted friends, some of the most trusted spiritual leaders, they're going to fail, right? We don't live forever in this world. So, I... Uh, it's interesting that last year, many of you probably know, but Billy Graham passed away last year, right? And on the screen, you see a picture of him laying, how do they say it? Lying in state in the nation's capital. This is the, under the central dome of our national capital. 
And this is Billy Graham lying in state. And it's interesting because there have, including Billy Graham, there have only been four private citizens that have had the honor of lying in state in our nation's capital. And the other thing that's interesting about Billy Graham is what did he dedicate his life to? Was his whole life focused on having a great funeral? You know, building this amazing sepulcher that people would remember him by? No, his life was dedicated to preaching the gospel, to serving the Lord, to walking through any door of opportunity the Lord would open for him to serve him. And yet, at the end of his life, the Lord honors him in this way. It's interesting in this picture, I don't know if you can see it, but the casket itself is a pretty simple, ordinary casket. And normally, you look at these images of, of a president or some great general or somebody, and it's, you know, it's a really like polished mahogany, high-end casket. But here's Billy Graham in this simple-looking casket lying in state in our national capital. Only one of only four that have ever been given that honor. And I think there's a real lesson in that. You know, it's, are we serving? Are we trying to build our own kingdom? Or are we trying to serve the Lord's kingdom? Are we trying to do it in our own power? Or are we trying to do it in the Lord's power? So where do we ultimately put our hope? The answer is obvious. We ultimately, we put our hope in God, specifically in Christ. But there's a lot of ramifications to that, and we're going to finish by looking at one more passage. It's in Revelations 3. Revelations 3, this is early on in Revelation when Jesus is delivering through the, his angel to John a series of letters to seven churches. And these are real churches that exist at the time, but they're written not just to these seven churches, they're written for the church, for the church throughout the church age, for us to, to hear instruction from the Lord. And listen to this. This is chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 7. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Sound familiar? Familiar language, right? So Elikim ultimately failed. He ultimately died or was taken into captivity and taken to Babylon. But the, either way, the nation was taken to Babylon. Right? He ultimately failed. But Jesus is saying, look, I'm the Holy One, the True One, and I have the key of David. Verse 6, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Same exact language, right? And this is Jesus personally saying to the church, look, behold, I've opened the door. And look, if I open the door, there is nobody can shut it. I mean, Elohim, as a steward, not even the king, I gave him a certain amount of power. But I am the power. If I open it, there isn't nobody who's ever going to shut it. Ever, ever, ever. Okay? Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So what Jesus is saying here is, look, I'm going to open a door of evangelism to you guys. You're going to preach the gospel to this Jewish synagogue that doesn't know me, and they're going to come to know me, and they're going to bow down and worship me before you. And I, who's doing it? Jesus is doing it. Jesus is opening the door. For their ministry, right? And notice, are these, is this a big, powerful church? You know, multi-million dollar budget, mega church? It says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one shut. I know that you have but little power, 
and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Never, ever, ever, ever underestimate the power of keeping the Lord's word and honoring his name and never denying him. You may feel incredibly powerless, but if you continue to keep his word and not deny him, very powerful things will happen in your life because of what the Lord wants to do through you. Amen? Amen. He continues on, he says in verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. I think Jesus is, there's a number of things that Jesus could be talking about there, but I think primarily he's talking about the final judgment, that this faithful church, this group of believers that have put their hope and faith and trust in him will be spared from that eternal judgment, that day of judgment, and that they will be with Christ. Verse 12, now catch this. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What Jesus is saying is, look, if you persevere and you continue to let go of your own power, let go of your own, what you think is going to make you so great, some idol, and instead embrace the Lord, put your hope and faith and trust in him, and trust him to open up the doors for opportunity to, to be a blessing to your friends and family and neighbors, one day he's going to open the door to you the door of eternity, the door of Jerusalem, the eternal city, the city of joy and hope and gladness and blessing and great glory. And we opens that door to us, no one will ever shut it. No one can have the power to even remotely put it ajar, right? Jesus opens that door to us forever. And in the meantime, and in this life, as we continue to seek the Lord and serve him and Put our trust and hope in him. Look for the doors that he's opening, opportunities to make a difference. Again, we in ourselves, when we start thinking of just what we're capable of, we just shut ourselves down. Or we get overconfident and we think we're all that, we're going to make this huge difference, and then we fall flat on our face, right? But if we look for what is the Lord doing, where's their open door? Where can I make a difference? How can I share the gospel? You know what, Lord? I don't think I can bring someone to Christ. I don't think I can give a, an effective presentation of the gospel. But you know what? I know I can walk over to my neighbor's house and just say, how's it going? And I'll look for you to open the door. I'll look for you to bring up the conversation. I'll look for, I'll listen for it. And every time I've done this, there's always some little something that gets said because it's unavoidable, by the way. I mean, we're talking about the creator of the universe. He made everything. So if you're, whatever you're going to talk about, there's going to be some segue into the one who made it, right? And to the one who messed it up. And to the redemption for the one who messed it up, right? So it's Christ. He's the key. He's the master key. He's the key to the house, to the Father's house. And not only is he going to open doors and give us opportunity for blessing. One thing I want to share is, I'll just say really briefly, I, I noticed it was, it's been really cool to watch Emily. She just went on a mission trip, right? 
And I think she got a little taste of what it looks like when Jesus starts to open doors. As she's in this country where Christianity is forbidden, where people, if you convert to Christianity, you're going to be ostracized and put out of the family. And she had the opportunity to talk to these people and play basketball with them and have conversations with them and share her faith with them. She got a little taste what Jesus can do when you start to just take a step in trusting him and having faith in him. And since she's been back, she's like rattling every door she can find. She's like, oh, okay, we could go serve over here. We could go serve over here. And while we're serving these people, we can share the gospel with them. Let's go help out with the women here at the homeless ministry. Let's help out this and that. And it's just awesome. It's just exciting to see that going on. I was hoping she'd be here this morning because I wanted to share that. But she's, it's just awesome to see when, when we suddenly see God do something in someone's life because we took this tiny little simple step of faith like oh, I'm just going to talk to my neighbor and talk about the Dodgers or the Angels whatever whatever your thing is and see what the Lord's going to do but he's the one that opens the door not us and that's the, the hard part we have become so self-sufficient you know we live in a culture that is pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and do it make it happen but for anything really fruitful to happen it's going to be Christ Amen? All right, so last comment. I want to go circle all the way back to Shebna. So he didn't belong, right? He was in the wrong place, the wrong time, thinking he had the wrong kind of power. But where are we at the end of the book, at the end of the story? We're in the New Jerusalem. And how are we identified? Notice what God says. He says, the one who conquers I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. You're not going to be a little tiny weed in the corner. You're not going to be this tiny little utensil that hardly anybody notices in the corner. You are a pillar in the kingdom of God. You are a pillar in, the, in his new Jerusalem, in his new city. That means you are significant. You have a significant part in his family, in his household, and you belong there. You absolutely belong there if you belong to Christ. You belong there. You are a pillar in his city. Not only are you a pillar, but you are, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which comes down from my God and out of heaven and my own new name. Not only are you a pillar of this eternal city, but you'll never go out of it, meaning you'll never lose salvation. You'll never be removed. You'll never, God will never grab you by your feet and whirl you around and throw you out of Jerusalem. You are there forever. That's huge. Think about the times that you have been rejected, things that, times that you've been lost, the things that you've been, times you've been put out, put off the team, put out of the household, put out of the company, put out of the, the in-group. That will never happen in the new city. You will belong forever and always in his love, in his glory, in his great joy. And only that, he's going to put on you his own name in the name of his city. That's like saying, look, you belong. You belong to the point where my own name is written on you. The name of my city is written on you. You are here. This is your home. What do you do when you find a lost pup, lost dog with a collar? Check his little thing. And usually he's got the name. Whose name is on that little thing? And whose phone number? The little tag, right? It's going to be the owner's name. and might be the dog's name. might be, you know, Blackie. And then the owner's name and phone number, maybe. 
But look, we, we belong. We belong to Christ if we put our hope and faith and trust in him. And that's, that's very powerful. We have the master key in him. Let's pray. Lord, I, um, I confess to you that so often I think I'm the master key. Lord, so often I think it depends on me. God, and then the next thing I do is I begin to limit what can be done, what can be achieved, because I am so limited. I have so little power, Jesus, but your word says that when we trust you, when we belong to you, very powerful things happen because you are all-powerful, because you have the key, and what you open, no one can ever close, and what you close, no one can ever open. So, Lord, we will trust you with that, God. Each day, Father, help us to think on and remember that it's about you, your power, your glory, that we serve and we serve you, Lord, and you are amazing. In your son's name, amen.